Good afternoon, everyone. It's Dr. Niger again, our next episode of Psychology Unplugged. As always, a heartfelt thank you to our followers, uh, so many people who um, reach out to us. It's really fun, whether it's through text or email. Um, we're just talking uh, to you guys. Uh, it's, it's just a cool experience, and I, I look forward to doing this every week. And there's no, you know, there's no shortage or paucity of topics for us to cover. Uh, I think the vast majority is everybody loves the, the personality disorders, so I'll probably circle around back to those at some point. Uh, neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Uh, we have a lot of students who follow us, and um, I have been trying to do a better job when I do more of the clinical episodes, which is, this is going to be more of a clinical episode of, of, of making no of organizing my notes and, and uh, preparing in advance with, again, you know, I still go off on tangents, but uh, today we're going to cover uh, something that I encounter quite frequently. Uh, something I believe Julian encounters quite frequently, and I think a disorder that is definitely uh, on the rise, and that is social anxiety disorder, or what is also referred to in the current diagnostic manual as social phobia. Um, certainly the advent and the um, speed of technology in terms of you know, what you see on TikTok or Instagram, uh, chat rooms, all the different, um, you know, social media platforms uh, really, I think, um, has negatively impacted um, a young adolescent population. And social anxiety is something that can be uh, quite debilitating, and it's a common referral question I get because it can look like other disorders. So let's go through the diagnostic criteria. All right. First criteria is a marked fear or anxiety about one or more social situations in which an individual is exposed to possible scrutiny by others. So it's a, it's a social situation where there is an evaluative component public speaking, we'll just kind of use that as a framework, uh, which is the most common uh, phobia. Um, so, you know, other examples can be like just meeting unfamiliar people, uh, being observed eating or drinking, uh, and again, like I said, giving a speech, anything where there is an evaluative possibility of, of being scrutinized by other people. Because what, what the person is essentially doing is they're putting their sense of self in front of others, um, and, you know, depending on, you know, what the situation is, uh, there's, there's definitely an evaluative component to it. Um, so, criteria B, um, the individual fears that he or she is going to act in a way to show anxiety that will be negatively evaluated. Um, they're going to be feeling like they're going to be humiliated. They're going to lead to be rejections. They're going to offend others. So they're, they're projecting onto, you know, uh, that this situation is coming up and it's not going to turn out in my favor. And see, the social situations almost always provoke fear or anxiety, which can sometimes manifest as just generalized anxiety or panic. But it's really about the, the aspect of a social situation. Really, when there's performance... 
involved. Uh, performance in terms of, uh, you know, getting up and, you know, reciting the multiplication tables, um, getting up and giving a, a presentation, all things where you're put um, in a situation. I think you can even have that evaluative component, you know, as the world has changed to a a hybrid model since the pandemic from going uh, into an office to also, um, you know, being on a conference call uh, just and just talking about whatever it is you're assigned to talk about, whether that's just, you know, a phone call or Zoom or a FaceTime meeting. Um, and the social situations are, are avoided or they're endured with intense fear of anxiety. Okay, so I mean, if the person has to, if they can get out of it, then they have social anxiety, they're going to try and get out of it. Um, next criteria, the fear or anxiety is out of proportion to the actual threat proposed by the social situation or the, the social, 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 uh, social cultural context. So again, it's, it's a disproportionate, uh, it's like the crime doesn't meet the punishment. Um, the fear, anxiety, or avoidance is persistent and has to last at least, you know, six months or more. It's not just, you know, you can have anxiety about maybe, uh, you know, just, just giving a speech at someone's graduation. That's like, like a one and done kind of thing. Uh, but it has to really persist for a specific period of time. Um, the fear, anxiety, or avoidance causes clinically significant distress uh impairment in all areas of functioning uh it's, it's not uh better explained by a medical condition and uh it's not better explained by uh this very important distinction it's not better explained by another psychiatric disorder such as panic disorder body dysmorphic disorder or autism spectrum disorder those are three completely separate disorders, all of which have social, emotional, or social uh, anxiety features associated with it, but social anxiety disorder slash social phobia is a distinct, um, is, is a distinct diagnosis in and of itself. So again, the essential feature of social anxiety is the intense fear of anxiety in social situations with the fear of scrutiny. Um, uh, in children, the, the anxiety it must occur in, in peer settings and not just interactions with adults. So maybe, you know, a fear of going to talk to a teacher, it has to also extend specifically with children and adolescents to the social anxiety in the peer group. Um, so individuals with this, with this disorder, they're very concerned that they will be judged uh, as anxious, weak, crazy, stupid, boring, intimidating, uh, dirty, unlikable. So you can see a very negative, um, negative and pejorative uh, descriptors of the sense of self. Um, so... Uh, some of these individuals, they, they, they fear offending other people or they fear being rejected as a result. Uh, the fear of offending others, for example, is like by you know, a gaze or by showing anxiety symptoms. Uh, 
and the, the, the you know they can you you can see hands trembling, um, eating, shaking, sweating, this nervousness. So there can be very very visible signs to uh, social anxiety, and it has the. Um, the social situations in this disorder almost invariably provoke fear or anxiety. And, you know, an individual who becomes anxious only occasionally in social situations really wouldn't be diagnosed with a social anxiety disorder. So, if, like I said, go back to that example I gave about giving a toast at a graduation or a wedding. That's a very, you know, um, myopic and, and microscopic situation. And if, if they don't have social anxiety in other situations, you they wouldn't meet the diagnostic criteria for that. Um, let's see what else I read here. Um, okay, and the anticipatory anxiety may occur sometimes way far in advance of upcoming situations. Like worrying for days, weeks, or months about having to perform in, in some type of social context. Uh, in children, uh, the fear or anxiety can be expressed by crying, tantrums, freezing, clinging, uh, just kind of shrinking in social situations. And the, 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 goal, of the, the goal of this is uh, the individual wants to just avoid the social situations altogether. Um, so in, in non-performance-based non evaluative social situations, individuals generally don't experience the social anxiety. So they may be an anxious person by nature, but if the situation just requires them to maybe, hey, be a guest at a wedding, maybe they're just going to set their table, they're not going to interact, but there's no really evaluative connotation. Uh, I, I guess it could probably evoke if you're sitting next to that one guest who has to ask you every question. When I think we all know people like that. We've sat next to them or been at a party, and that kind of puts you like, okay, what do you do for a living? You know, what town do you live in? Where'd you grow up? And this and that. Yeah, it's like, be quiet. That could probably, you know, create anxiety or annoyance. Um, in somebody with, with social situations. So social situations in and of themselves with social anxiety disorder have to really have that fear of the performance being scrutinized, which is then going to lead them into a negative state of mind and a negative sense of self. And and the fear is, again, like I said, it is very, it's totally out of proportion to the actual risk of being negatively evaluated. Um, you know, so if you think about it, if you're giving a speech at work, you're giving a speech based upon your knowledge base, or if you're giving a speech as a student in class, you're talking about a topic that you've, you, you've read about and you've learned about. People are there to learn. They're not there to evaluate. Uh, but I think in, in, in the world that we live in, uh, and I've, I've seen this with, you know, a lot of times with, uh, you know, cyberbullying and, and, you know, uh, kids who are, you know, taking pictures, you know, if, you, if you're that kid that doesn't fit in uh, and it gets posted all over social media, it can really have a negative effect uh, and certainly contribute to other more severe disorders like 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 major depressive disorder, uh, self-injurious behaviors, even 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 OCD. Um, what else did I write here? Uh, so the. The the you know therapy is definitely um, cognitive therapy is definitely uh, a viable 
an effective intervention. And a lot of times you can do what's called in vivo exposure therapy. Role playing is a very effective technique in preparing person for social situations. And um, I, I, and you know, there's this generalization and I, I've seen this with people and I've, and I've done this because our office is right above uh, a bakery. And I've had kids and, and I've had adults too who, who really, you know, talk about this this debilitating anxiety in social situations that they, they, they can't even um, you know, go into Dunkin' Donuts or go into a store to buy something. And uh, I've done this on occasion, you know, certainly with, with their patients' consent, is I've taken them down to the bakery with them. And stood in line next to them, had them order a tea or whatever, and then go back up to the office, then kind of process that situation with them. Uh, and what you're kind of doing is you're, you know, then you get to the whole part of like cognitive disputation. And these are individuals who, if you go back to the episode I did on irrational beliefs, catastrophizing. Uh, dichotomous thinking, all good, all bad. And I found in, in the times that I've done this, that it's like... The you know I'm generalizing, but invariably the response was that wasn't that bad, and you got through it, and you and, and and now you're able to have evidence to dispute. Yes, you may be anxious, but you actually were able to stand in line, tolerate the discomfort, and do something. And I've had people that would call me, you know, say, "Oh my God, I, I went to Dunkin' Donuts. I'm going there every day." And it, it, does it happen like that for everybody? No, but it does require you know you can you can do systematic desensitization for some situations, but I, I find that in vivo exposure therapy and really decreasing the generalization. And I think sometimes when people have had a negative situation in a social situation where they were negative to, negatively evaluated. So say you're a musician and you're going to, and you do your first open mic night and nobody claps and ever some may boo or a comedian, that is certainly what it, I think would inhibit a person from wanting to go and do that again, unless their self-esteem is so solid that they just don't care. Um, but those are really exceptions versus, versus the norm. But, you know, we live in a judgmental world. We live in a world where we are constantly comparing ourselves to other people. And that's one of the things I asked during my structured diagnostic clinical interview is about social situations. It's about social media and, and, and the impact that it has on, on, the, on the sense of self. And again, it comes back to everything what the DSM says. It's really in the situations where the person has to perform, whether that's athletics, music, gymnastics, dance, um, again, just the name in and of itself, social anxiety disorders or disorder, but it doesn't mean that the individual cannot be in a social situation. That doesn't mean they cannot go to the mall. Then you're getting into like agoraphobia, um, which is a separate disorder in and of itself. And, you know, social anxiety disorder is very different than autism spectrum disorder, where there, where there are social, there's more social deficits. So individuals with social anxiety disorder don't necessarily lack the ability to perform or the lack of the ability to interact socially with other people. It's the fear 
and the intense anxiety associated with what they're you know going to be required to do at some point again giving a speech at a wedding you know um any situation where the, you know the eyes are going to be on them and they had that's that if the social anxiety is there you know don't pursue a career as a public speaker you have a social anxiety disorder um but again, it could, it could it could really lead to a whole host of other problems, and especially in the world where that we're constantly comparing ourselves and uh, you know and try to you know try to talk to you know especially young kids and adolescents and sometimes you've talked to adults like what people post on the internet or on their social media is only the part of their lives that they want you to see, which tend to be more of the happier and the more euphoric phases but i also know from working with individuals doing diagnostics of how much they 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 believe this and it affects it really affects you know the integrity of 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 their self-esteem and again it can be you know incredibly debilitating so uh can there be other comorbid disorders um, you know, other things with social anxiety, you know, yes, there could be panic, there could be generalized anxiety disorder, there could be separation anxiety, there could be selective mutism, d- depression, body dysmorphic disorder, delusional disorder, personality disorders, other things can occur um, with with social phobia. Um, but um, the, with the difference with autism is individuals with social anxiety disorder, like I said, typically have the adequate age-appropriate social relational skills and the communication skills, um, but they have the impairments when that fear pops in when they're interacting with other people. There's a major difference between social anxiety and the social deficits in autism. So um, it's a common disorder. Uh, really, it, it can manifest early in childhood. I think we're like we're eight years old, um, and it could, you know, it, it expresses itself in 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 many different ways. Um, and there's um, a lot a lot of embarrassment about it, you know, especially if somebody maybe has a, a, a physical handicap or physical limitation that's that's very noticeable, um, but. You know, it's it's important to be aware that this is something that is treatable, and it's not something that you want to run to. And I've heard people, I'll just pop a Valium, or I'll ta- I'll take an Ativan, I'll take a Xanax. Yes, those medications work, but we've mentioned this on one of the episodes, and, and I, I think Julie's going to pop on that. You know, long term use of benzodiazepines places individuals at a significantly elevated risk of the possibility of dementia, you know, Ativan, Clonopin, Xanax, uh, Diazepam, which is Valium. So these medications work, but, you know, it's a really treatment. Are you really overcoming it if you have to, you know, only be in the situation if you, or, you know, and and substance abuse factors in, you know, people will sometimes be in social situations where they need, you know, say like, like liquid courage or that that social lubricant, but those are, those are band-aids. They are not solutions. Cognitive behavioral therapy is is the most effective, inter, you know, uh, intervention. And again, this is different than you know avoidant personality disorder. Although, again, personality disorders can occur with social anxiety. So I'm let Julie pop on because she's standing right here next to me, and this is something you know, um, you know, when do you medicate? Should you medicate? Um, oh. 
Just, 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 just kicking me. I'm not chopping during the just, episode. Just mince the garlic. That would be really helpful. Hello, everyone. Happy Sunday. Let me just get my my uh, my beverage here. Water. Um, so I've been uh, listening to Core and I'm kind of phasing in and out, but I definitely wanted to talk about something that I think is kind of important when it comes to medications um, is, you know, there's a relationship that people have to medication, meaning people have a relationship with medication. I've been through my own journey with medication. Um, you know, back when I was a therapist, I was kind of anti-meds. Um, I really was like, no, medications are, you know, overdoing it, yada, yada, yada. I really didn't know. Then, then as I was immersed in my career path, I noticed that, well, I actually was able to see how medications make a difference, whether I was working in a partial day program or outpatient treatment or on an inpatient unit. So I was able to really see on different levels of care how helpful medications can be and at times how necessary medications can be. Um, I have noticed too um, with my clients over the years is there are a lot of people who rush to take medicines because in our society it's like let's let's fix it. Let's fix it yesterday. People find that having um, unpleasant feelings that are consistent um, to be pesky and um, annoying to the point where they think medications will help make those feelings disappear. Um, So there are people who are very pro-medication. Then there are people who are very anti-medication, like, um, I don't want to say deer in the headlights, but people very often, um, especially uh, as, you know, it, it you meet all different sorts of people, but I'm talking about right now the relationship that people have to medication. Um, some find it uh, like a never-do situation, um, whether that's their upbringing uh, or their belief system um, or society uh, or the groups they're running with, um, or maybe they know of somebody who's had a horribly bad experience. This is a very common theme uh, that I hear with families. My clients will talk about somebody who was mentally um, mentally ill in the family. Uh, historically, usually it was, you know, it could be in a um, parallel generation or it could be, you know, generations before where, as you probably know, um, back in the day, people weren't properly diagnosed and people didn't talk about mental illness and the stigma sort of started and um, there wasn't a real good and understanding of what mental illness was. But if, if someone, I, I've met several clients who have had that experience of seeing their one of their parents or their sibling or an aunt or a grandparent um, or a friend, um, a fr- friend that has been on many medications, um, and they have seen that that person suffer. Um, whether it's medications that's making them suffer, or whether it wasn't particularly a successful treatment modality for that person, 
Um, who knows? But um, a lot of that is like general, generally passed down from generation to generation. And um, so that's that's part of it. So a lot of people bring that into the into um, an intake session or into the relationship with me or any provider out there. And then there are people who really, really are so used to not being medicated. Um, most clients that we see when they're depressed, they've been depressed for a very long time. By the time they get into treatment, but by, by the time they realize they need treatment, and then by the time you know they get into treatment, um, they're, they needed help years ago, um, but they opted not to take it or they didn't know that they needed it. And that's the part that I kind of want to um, talk a little bit more about today. So there are the people that who are sitting before you who are used to struggling and the struggle's real, whether it's anxiety and they're in perpetual fight or flight mode, um, survival mode, um, they're used to being depressed, um, they're like, you know, I'm not feeling any joy in my life, I'm feeling all these various symptoms of depression and anxiety. Um, and they're just not, you know, the question is, is when do I medicate? When do I take medications? When is it time to take medicine? And I always say, how's your life now? Or do you remember a time when you were feeling good and feeling well? And, and then talking to people about, you know, kind of like, how severe is your depression? How, how severe... And how long have you felt depressed? Or how bad is your anxiety? So the bottom line with any medication regimen, I feel like, in my, in my journey as a prescriber, is I always tell people when it impacts your quality of life. So when Cora was talking about agoraphobia, that is a straight-up example of someone who just gets to the point where they're so anxious for a bevy of reasons that may not be known to us. Um, every case is different. But a person who gets to that point where they will not leave the house, they're afraid to leave the house. And I always use the Chicken Little reference for generalized anxiety disorder where he runs around telling the village an acorn falls on his head, but he runs around and tells the entire village that the sky is falling. I use that little story to describe generalized anxiety when people wake up feeling anxious. Um, people go to bed feeling anxious. People wake up in the middle of the night feeling anxious. Um, people deal with life differently when they're very anxious, when they're already anxious. So that's when I usually try, and you know, there's no coercion, of course. It's a therapeutic relationship. But the best that I can do is just teach them what the medications do. So very often I'll be talking about what does something like an SSRI do for anxiety. So I will explain that it's a chemical thing. Yes, is it behavioral? Sure. Yes, is cognitive behavioral therapy a must? Absolutely. Um, and especially with depression as well. Um, so there is a combination of things that you can do. Working out. It doesn't have to, you have to go to a gym. I just posted something on Instagram, which I found quite humorous about a guy who finally decides to join the gym and they're in there doing like these, like beyond, 
Navy SEAL workouts. And, and it's sort of like how you feel when you walk into a gym anyway. I think a lot of people don't go to the gym as much as they used to be since uh, the pandemic. But, um, you know, just that level of, you know, self-care. So is it, you know, can I go for a walk? Can I be out in nature? Can I do things? To... Course pointing me to what? Social anxiety. I'm talking about something and I'm weaving social anxiety in. Whoa, bro. Go chop the garlic. Um, so, and having said all that, um, I usually will talk about what do the medications do? That typically if it's anxiety, there's a whole bunch of medicines that we can use. You can use buspirum, which is a very just strictly an a, just an anti anti anxiety medicine. It's an anxiolytic that people can take for several times a day, a couple times, two to three times a day for anxiety. It usually takes two weeks to work. That's usually what I will use if I have a client that is has bipolarity. Um, before putting them on an antidepressant like an SSRI or an SNRI. Um, sometimes with anxiety, it's serotonin depletion in the brain. So we need an SSRI on board to help alleviate the anxiety, which is when, when I say when someone's amygdala is on fire. Um, serotonin can sometimes more often come to the rescue there, but sometimes norepinephrine is more helpful. Um, with anxiety. Venlafaxine is an excellent medication for anxiety, and it's an SNRI. Cymbalta is also an excellent um, SNRI medication for anxiety and depression, both of which are great for depression and anxiety. Like we've said before, the lower doses for the generalized anxiety, social phobia, the social anxieties, you don't need a lot on board. You know, again, a full neuropsych eval is on is always ideal. But if you can't, just talk to your provider about how anxious you're really feeling and how depressed you're really feeling. But talk to your primary cares first. They're the first line. Um, we continue, and I'm going to talk about one other point, and then I'm going to step off. But uh, Step off. Step off, step Tony. Off, Tony. Um, <clears throat> that's a Seinfeld reference. Sorry about that. Um, just talking a little bit about, um, you know, the availability of care right now is abysmal. And like I said last uh, week, um, the mental health system is, is, a, is, is a very disjointed. Um, it's, it's a disaster. I feel like there's not enough providers out there, um, particularly it doesn't matter if you're in the city. Um, I had someone reach out to us from Washington, D.C., who just repeatedly kept going in and out of an emergency room but wasn't discharged anywhere. Um, I'm finding through uh, colleagues that I've been speaking with lately that, you know, people are being turned down at the emergency rooms, not, not getting these beds that they need on inpatient units. I'm here to tell you to advocate for yourself. I want you to advocate for yourself because when you go, when you're not feeling right, go to the emergency room. They're open 24 seven. They will, they will observe you. What does that mean? Well, they're going to clear you medically, but you're going to sit there, but at least it's a safe place to sit. And then they'll evaluate you. Sometimes it's quick and you're in and out. And sometimes they can find a bed really quickly. Sometimes it takes a long time. Depends on how busy the emergency rooms are. 
If there's a local hospital that is well known and has a good reputation, ask your ask if you go by ambulance, you tell the EMTs what ER you want to go to. And then when you're at the emergency room, you advocate for yourself and you say, I'll wait. I want to go to this facility. But the what the way it works is the the emergency rooms medically clear you, ship you to the nearest open bed. So if you, let's say, live on Cape Cod and you live in Massachusetts, but there's an opening in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, guess where you're going? That's where you're going. So unless you advocate for yourself, you have rights. So I always tell my clients, advocate for McLean. McLean's a very well-known um, inpatient facility here. Or advocate for Mass General. They have a great inpatient facility. There are lots of inpatient ones. We're sort of in the bastion of... Um, of medical care here in um, Boston, but but also just knowing how to ask and advocate for yourself. I think a lot of people don't know this, and if you're feeling scared and unsure, then you let them know that. You let the medical professionals know that. If you don't feel safe, you tell them you're not feeling safe. Um, just say, I don't feel safe enough to go home. I want to, I want treatment. Back to relationship with medication. I feel like what happens a lot, and this is extremely common, young people go through a relationship with medication. This is very typical of adolescents, teenagers, and 20-somethings. They feel like there's something wrong with them if they have to take a medication. And what is this doing to me? Why me and not my friends? Why me and not someone else? Why me? Why me? Sometimes the medications can alter a person's personality to the point where, let's say, an example would be an antidepressant that is, you know, uh, titrated up to treat whatever level of anxiety or depression someone might have. Again, this is, I'm not talking about bipolar here. I'm just talking about anxiety and depression and all the various different types um, you know, people get frustrated when they're young. They don't understand. They just, they don't want to be that person. But when, when the, when the antidepressant, and this happens with adults too, when an antidepressant is, is on board and it's being titrated and it goes up to a certain level, sometimes people can feel flat. And flat means not a lot of affect, not feeling very engaged, um, and that's because it's supposed to do that for a spell because it's treating the neurology. It's treating the neurotransmitters that need to be treated in order for someone to feel less depressed and less anxious. So it's to stabilize somebody. That's the part that's difficult. The second piece to this is I feel better. I'm taking my medicine and suddenly I feel great. So I'm going to stop taking it. No. No. That's not the right thing to do. You always talk to your provider about that. Medication is, so if you're an anxious person and you're in treatment and you're in therapy, you're doing cognitive behavioral therapy and you're doing it on a regular basis and you have a treatment plan and you have goals, right? Goals are important. It's not just chit-chat therapy, it's goal-related. That's what you need from your therapy. And you need it cognitive behaviorally based. When you do that, and you're taking your medicine, 
And then over time, what you what you realize, and I think what I think is the most important message for especially anxiety is, wow, I'm able to handle that situation a lot better than I normally would have. And the more time you get under your belt and the stronger you become in the face of anxious moments and the way that you handle those moments internally and behaviorally, if you see a marked improvement over time, of course you can come off medicine. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a staunch believer in not being on medication forever if you don't have to be. So I have clients that I literally push out of the nest because they're like, I think I'm ready. And I'm like, I think you're ready too. You know where to find me. But with depression, this is what a lot of people don't know. And I have to say probably 99.9% of clients of mine and patients that I've ever had do not know the science behind this. If I'm wrong, please correct me, but this is how I was taught. If you're depressed, if you have been diagnosed with major depressive disorder, you need to be on your medications for at least two years without symptoms of depression. You need to remit. You need to get into remission. Being in remission in depression is extremely crucial because of what I just said five minutes ago, when I feel better, I stop taking my meds. Not for depression. No way. If you go off your meds with anxiety too soon, you're going to feel it. If it's too soon, you'll feel it. It's like I always say, just dip your toe in the water, taper down a little bit, hang back. See how you feel, see how you cope, see how you're doing. With depression, it's a different beast. A depre- depression is relentless, and it is, it is 50%, 50% of uh, people who stop their medication prematurely before they remit have a 50% chance of a relapse. 50% chance on top of that of that relapse being worse. So, for those of you who feel depressed, please know this. Talk to your provider about this. Your providers know this. But I'm always baffled at how many people I meet that don't know that. So when I tell people, okay, this is the journey. Let's do this. Are you on board? They've been educated. Here's what you need to know down the road. Be patient. Put, get your years in. Get those good years under your belt. Get those several months under your belt so that you can get into to a place where, yes, maybe you can reach remission. And then you can contemplate and talk to your prescriber about coming off of your meds, but not before you remit. And remit does not mean throw my meds out when I feel better, not with major depression. So those are some... I don't know what you want to call them. I hate to call them pearls of wisdom, but, I mean, I certainly didn't invent them. So I'm just passing them along. So Cora wants me to talk about social anxiety. So if I have a client that's socially anxious, that's a very, very easy anxiety to treat. Um, usually if that is the only diagnosis I'm dealing with, if that is that crystal clear, it's a no-brainer. So you'll have somebody who's socially anxious. So these people will say, I might not want to be on a med every single day. Well, if you're going to take buspirone, um, which is an anxiolytic, that's what it was designed for. That's what it does. It's typically non-sedative. 
It's dosed a couple of times a day, sometimes three times a day, depending on how social somebody is. So I would always ask, okay, so what is your social situation? Are, is it social, social anxiety at work? Are we looking at like a long period of your day? Um, is it social anxiety while you're in college? Um, is it social anxiety when you're in school? Um, when is the social anxiety? So some people will say, well, I'm really just socially anxious when I go out with my friends. And that's typical because that's when people start drinking alcohol, they start using marijuana so that they can feel normal. So sometimes people just want an as-needed medicine. There are as-needed medicines. I'm not a fan of benzodiazepines, especially for young people. I think those are just, you know, they're great to have just as needed to know you have them if you're really on the verge of a panic attack. I think they're quite helpful, but they're not an answer. Um, that's more for panic disorder with an, another medication, a mother med on board, which would be like, you know, an SSRI or an SNRI. But for socialized anxiety, that, that's more, I would probably try, you know, a little bit of Prozac, a little bit of Zoloft, knowing that there was no bipolar, no schizophrenia, no schizoaffective disorder, um, present, um, that's what I would do. I would probably start somebody on a low dose of Lexapro, which is escitalopram, or uh, Prozac, which is fluoxetine, Zoloft, which is sertraline, um, any of those, or even if someone does not respond to those, I would do a very low dose of venlafaxine, like a 37.5. Sometimes that just does the trick. Um, in that way, no matter what situation they're going into, they're kind of covered. I usually like to have that one and done on board versus the as needed. Buspirone is great for people who are very, very anxious but don't can't tolerate an antidepressant. Um, some people just, they don't agree with, it doesn't agree with them. If you tried the SNRIs and the SSRIs and, and they don't work, especially if there's even a whiff of bipolarity, I will definitely go toward the buspirone. Buspirone takes two weeks to actively, if taken on a regular basis, takes two weeks before it shows any results typically. Um, I like it because it's not sedative, so people aren't feeling groggy. Um, and, you know, other things you can use, clonidine. Clonidine is good for anxiety. Propranolol, that's also great for anxiety, social anxiety. They, propranolol is something that people often prescribe um, to people who public speak who are very anxious about that. I have a lot of um, students that are in graduate school or college who are very frightened to speak in public. So those are the kinds of things that we can prescribe there. Hydroxazine is also called Vistril. That is like an amped up Benadryl um, that has, you know, antihistamine properties, which can also make people feel drowsy. Uh, clonidine stops fight or flight dead in its tracks, um, but it can cause sedation. So sometimes people don't really like the side effect, that particular side effect. Um, Benzodiazepines, again, they can be very habit-forming, and um, again, I don't give them to very young people, but if I do have somebody who really needs just a few a month, just in case they need, like if they're going on an airplane, 
and they're very afraid to fly, those are always good medicines to have just as needed, not on a daily basis whatsoever. If you see that somebody is really or becoming dependent and needing more than one or two a day, that means that you need another mothership medicine on board to take care of all that anxiety. Because the benzodiazepines and the short, the, the, the medications that are as needed, um, they only work temporarily. They're washout meds. Um, especially if people who have alcohol use problems. Um, you don't want to be on a benzodiazepine because that's really just dry alcohol. So I always ask people for an accurate history or ask them how much are they socially drinking. And if someone's actively socially drinking or drinking on a daily basis, I won't add a benzo at all. Um, so food for thought. Thank you for all of your questions. Um, Thank you for, what did I want to say something about the novena or no? Okay. Um, feel free to ask any questions you'd like. Thank you for reaching out to us. God bless you. Be well, be safe, and happy 4th of July. Have a safe and wonderful States. weekend. Huh? In the United States. Bye, guys. Thank you, Julie for updating us on the nuances of medication um, and for touching on social anxiety. But um, social anxiety, like I said, is definitely can be debilitating, can have a lot of uh, ancillary somatic symptoms. Um, people tend sometimes to stay at home longer, uh, get married later, choose jobs that may be lower than what their ability level is, especially if the job requires any kind of public speaking or, 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 or evaluative uh, opportunities as part of their job requirements, but it is definitely something that can be treatable. Uh, if you do have social anxiety, I would definitely cut down, if not eliminate your social media usage, get into somebody who can do uh, effective cognitive behavioral therapy, and if it gets to a point where adjunct psychotropic medication is required, that's going to be your most beneficial um outcome so uh as always thank you for your continued support um got several other topics that we're going to cover uh, as we prepare more diligently than we have in the past um so feel free to contact me directly through psychology unplugged at outlook.com through psychology today uh you could follow us on instagram at psychology underscore Unplugged underscore, and you can contact me directly at 617-750-9411, East Coast Standard Time in the United States. Have a great weekend, have a great week, and I will talk to you guys next week. Thanks. Bye, guys.